Isaiah chapter 65, it says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts of people who provoke me to anger continually to my face who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. It says you, but also thou. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus is the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster. And one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place of herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. And we're going to pause right there. We'll get to the rest. The chapter is a chapter about the future. And we have a, an insatiable curiosity about the future. There are people who desperately want to know what the future holds. Some of us are curious about the future, but some of us are terrified about the future. 
People in business want to know the future of housing and energy and economy. People in agriculture want to know the future about the environment. People in religion want to know about the end of the world. People in science want to know about the end of the world. People in politics want to know about the end of the world. You know, I'm convinced that Paul loved the book of Isaiah. And I am convinced that the Apostle Paul wondered why the Jews were so eager to reject the Messiah and why the Gentiles were so, why the Jews were so eager to reject the Messiah and why the Gentiles were so eager to accept the Messiah. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He was a Benjamite. He was circumcised the eighth day. He loved the Jewish people and he wanted to reach the Jewish people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, he quotes this exact passage as he began to ask and answer the question, what is it about the Jewish people? Why is it that these people who have been in such a position of privilege. They've received the promises of God. God worked in the life of Abraham. God worked in the life of Jacob. God worked in the life of Joseph. God worked in the life of the children of Israel. God worked in their life as he put them, took them to Egypt and he brought them out a nation and he showed them signs and he spoke to them and prophesied to them and for them. How is it possible that people with such great privilege could constantly reject the Lord and reject the promise of the Lord and reject the Messiah of the Lord? If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 10 because it's going to be important as we continue our study. In Romans chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, But I say, Did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made known or made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Israel was given a picture of their future. Remember, as Isaiah is writing these words, there's going to be a catastrophe. Judah's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. They're going to be taken to Babylon. They're going to sit by the river Euphrates. They're going to be in bondage for a very long time. The children of Israel will make their way back to a destroyed Judah and Jerusalem and try to rebuild their lives because God has a plan and a purpose for their future. He's going to fulfill the plans and purposes. He's going to bring forth the Messiah. The problem of sin is going to be resolved. Some of us are frightened by the future terrified. Some of us are curious about the future. Not simply about what the future holds. It sounds almost cliche to say God is an eternal being. He occupies all of eternity. He occupies the past and the present and the future. Is God alive and well tomorrow? The answer is yes. 
How about next week? Yes. How about next month? Yes. How about next year? Yes. How about the, the next thousand years? Yes. Is there any future apart from God? The answer is no. God occupies the future. It sounds cliche, but we're not afraid of the future because we know who holds the future. The most important thing about the future is God is there and he is there fulfilling his plans and his purposes. And God is there in your future, fulfilling the plans and the purposes that he has for you. In this chapter, the Lord reminds Judah and Jerusalem of her sins in verses 1 through 7. Then he announces the plan of salvation to the Gentiles. And certainly the Old Testament gave hint that God was going to save the nations. But he did not reveal that believing Jews and believing Gentiles would unite together in one new nation, in one new man. The book of Ephesians calls it the new man, the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel deserved to be destroyed. But God promised to preserve the nation and he would keep the promise in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. He promises to keep his word. He is going to use as a metaphor to, to describe the promise that he's going to keep. A believing remnant is going to inherit the land, but the unbelievers are going to be cut off. It says in chapter 64, verses 9 through 17. And in this chapter, Isaiah gets a, a glimpse, a peek into the future from verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. It's sort of like previews of coming attractions. There will be a kingdom. And Isaiah sees in this kingdom Jerusalem as the center of the, of the earth. And there's going to be people who occupy this kingdom. And they're going to live. And Satan is going to be eventually judged. In this chapter, in chapter 66... The Lord reveals a plan of punishment for the nations and a plan of perfection for the nations. The entire world will be placed under the fiery scrutiny of God's judgment, but it will also be placed under the scrutiny of his justice. He predicts salvation. Look what it says in verse 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. The idea, remember in the last chapter, that the heavens are torn open. Remember the last time we got together and I asked and answered the question, have you ever felt like, where is God? Where are you, God? How come I'm not sensing your presence? How come you're not answering my prayers? Where are you, Lord? The world is unfolding and the future is unfolding. Where are you? But guess what? God is going to show himself. Were they seeking the Lord? Really? No. Were the Gentile people seeking the Lord? No. Did God do the same wonderful things in the midst of the nations to the Gentiles that he did to the Jews? The answer is no. So what about the people who have never heard about Jesus? Over and over again, I get asked the question, 
well, what about people who live far away? What about people who have never heard about Jesus? And all of a sudden, when you read the Scripture and you discover something, God isn't in the business of keeping His presence a secret. He says, here I am. Here I am. It's almost undignified. It's as if the universe is the, the Lord of the universe and the creator of the universe is drawing attention when you go, God, where are you? God, where are you? And the Lord goes, I'm over here. I'm here. Wake up. I'm right here. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is speaking to the to the Stoics and the Epicureans and the philosophers of Greece, he this is the that, that passage of scripture where where there is a a marble stone that says agnostos on it. It was a stone to the unknown God. And Paul comes and he begins to tell them about this unknown God. And he says in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. In Isaiah chapter 65, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible doesn't say God is far away. The Bible says that he's close by. If you look for him, if you'll open up your eyes, if you'll open up your ears, and Paul applies this verse to the Gentiles in the book of Romans. Here's the principle. And, and quite frankly, it's this. Paul is asking and answering the question, I don't get it. How can people who are so privileged refuse the God who shows up day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year? How can they just simply dismiss him? And so here's what Paul says. If the Jews don't want what God has to offer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord God will graciously extend the invitation to the nations of the world. Well, but wait a minute. Um, aren't the Jews the chosen people? Yes. Chosen for what? To bring forth the Messiah. And what is the purpose of the Messiah? To forgive sin. To reconcile sinners. So that people will know and understand God. And so here's, here's what I think the principle is. Does everyone want Jesus? Apparently the answer is no. You've talked to them. You've prayed for them. Hey, I couldn't help but noticing you're a sinner. Uh, what of it? Well, wouldn't you like to experience forgiveness of sin and hope in Christ? Not really. Why not? I like living the way that I live. I like doing what I'm doing. I, 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 you don't understand. I'm not trying to find God. I'm trying to avoid God. I'm trying to run as quickly and as far away from God as possible. So I know what most of you do. You do what I do. You don't give up. 
You go, you know what? I know that you're acting like a person who wants to resist and then reject God. But guess what? I'm going to continue to pray for you. Why bother? Well, because I love you and care about you. And I'd like to see you in heaven and not hell. Well, I don't believe in heaven or hell. Well, I know that you don't believe in heaven or hell, but it doesn't make heaven go away and it doesn't make hell go away. You're an eternal being and you're going to wind up somewhere. Does everyone want to know the Lord? Apparently not. If people continually resist and reject the Lord, we want to move on. But guess what? It's hard to move on, isn't it? Particularly when you care. But that's the principle. The Lord is moving on to the Gentiles. And look what it says in verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. The picture, just like God is saying, this is me, I'm here, I'm here, I'm, I'm willing to reveal myself. And then the revelation is given, I have stretched out my hands all day long. The picture is of a God who is there extending the invitation from morning through noon and night and then into the middle of the night and then the night passes and the morning comes and then it ends and then it's noon and then it's night again. But over and over again, God extends His hands of mercy, His gracious and loving invitation. That's the picture. He says to Israel, I'm stretching out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. The people have resisted His grace. They have resisted His loving invitation. And now Isaiah gives us the answer that we've been looking for. How is it possible that the people of privilege have rejected the promise? And he gives us the answer. It's because there were rebellious people. There are rebellious people. Do you know what rebellious means? Rebellious means hard-hearted. Rebellious means selfish. Rebellious means I want what I want. It means hardened. And so as he gives the answer to the rebellious people, now all of a sudden we understand a little bit about people who are extended privilege even in our own circumstances. You would think that growing up in a Christian home would be an advantage, don't you? Don't you think having a godly mother and a godly father should be a privilege? By the way, it is a privilege. Having a godly mother and having a godly father is a privilege. But having a godly father and having a godly mother, does that guarantee that the child will honor God and obey God and that that, that person will receive the gospel and they'll go, hey, guess what? I have, a, I have a godly mom and a godly dad and I have all of the ingredients that, are, that mean I'm going to have a right relationship with God. No, sometimes with privilege comes rebellion. That's what it says. And look, he gives the decree who walk in a way that is not good. What they're doing is evil. And they're according to their own thoughts. 
One translation says, according to their own schemes or according to their own devices. The idea being they're walking in a way that is wicked, they're walking in a, a way of rebellion, and they're walking in a way that is consistent with their own idea. How many times have you heard a person say, well, that's your idea about God, and I have my own idea about God. You know, I can't believe in a God who would sentence people to a to hell, to burn in eternity forever. And for whatever reason, for the Christian, it never occurs to them to say, don't you understand what hell is? Hell is the place where free will beings decide to go because they have decided to live a life quite apart from God. Do you understand what hell is? Hell is the choice that individuals make to reject and refuse God and then they get exactly what they wanted. That is exactly the case. According to their own thoughts, according to their own schemes, according to the false philosophy and the false religious system that they've constructed for themselves, now Isaiah describes the sins of his people. Why haven't God answered your prayer? Because you're a rebellious people. Because you walk in a way that isn't good. Because you could created a religion that is the product of your own imagination. Yes, the people have resisted His grace. Yes, they've resisted His loving invitation. The Lord has stretched His hands out to this rebellious people, even though they've practiced evil, even though they've lived in a world of their own wicked thoughts. Now think about this for just a moment. Living in a world of their own wicked thoughts, living in a world of evil and rebellion, guess what God does? He still continues to extend the hands of mercy. The, the gracious invitation continues to be extended. This is, again, in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. After 19 and 20, Paul again says, But to Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. The way Paul interpreted this verse in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, was that in spite of privilege, with the presence of prophecy, the power of God demonstrated over and over again, he was still opening up his arms saying it's not too late. I love you. I will receive you. And look in verse 3. A people who provoked me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. You have to understand something. That in the ancient world, people would build gardens, much like you know people in our culture and society have backyards or before our culture and society, people lived on farms and, and they would have fruit trees and they would have gardens. And, and so in those particular days, they would create fruit trees. They would plant fruit trees and shade trees, which would serve as an outdoor shrine. And if you travel in the Middle East and you travel to places like India and Sri Lanka, they'll have these massive outdoor gardens where they will build shrines to deities. And so this is exactly what the children of Israel, prior to the Babylonian captivity, they began to practice the religious practices of the people who were around them and burn incense on altars of brick. 
the authors of brick are probably made of limestone. And remember, they believed that if you took incense and you burned it, that it represented the prayers to the deity that would go up into heaven. Even in some um, church or some Christian religious traditions, most notably Roman Catholicism and in particular Greek Orthodoxy, they'll take incense and they'll burn the incense and the fragrant incense will make its way up to heaven as a sign and as a picture um, that the deity is listening to the prayers. So ancient peoples believed that the deities uh, dwelt in stones and trees. In the Canaanite religion, stones and trees were symbols of fertility. And, uh, and so again, these altars of brick, I suspect, actually refer to the altars of, of limestone that were constructed in the area. But here's the deal. The people went out of their way to provoke the Lord. And that the way that they would provoke the Lord is by not even having an affair with false deities on the side. Imagine you're married. And imagine your husband or your wife is sneaking around. But imagine now they're not sneaking around, but they show you the black book. They give you the address, the phone number, and the website of, your, of their lover. In other words, the pretense is now gone. They're committing adultery right in front of you in spite of everything that you've done. That's what's happening. The people went out of their way to provoke the Lord. And in that provocation, guess what? The anger fumes. But he still acts in grace and mercy. Remember what it said earlier in Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. So the Lord is provoked by their false and wicked worship. By the gods who are the gods who are the product of their own imagination. And then he cites yet another sin. They're getting involved with the supernatural. They're starting to deal with the occult, with demons. In verse 4 it says, Who sit among the graves, who spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things to their vessels. Okay, I want you to pause for just a moment and think. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. Why are they sitting in the grave and why are they spending the night in the tomb? Because in this ancient culture and society, they believe that in order to have communication with the dead, you have to go to the place where the dead are. And where do the dead live? In the cemeteries. And so, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, way before I became a Christian, remember when you would have those sleepovers? Hopefully none of you did this, but you would have a Ouija board, and you would get your Ouija board out, and you and your friends would slide it across the room, and you would ask and answer questions. You would have your own, you'd light your candles and have your own little seance, and it was all spooky and weird. But what these people would do is they would go to the actual graves, they would spend the night in the tombs, and they would ask the spirits of either deities or the departed to come into them and speak through them. That's what they're doing. They're, they're conducting what we would call incubation rituals. Calling up the dead. Inviting the dead. Why? Because they want to know 
future. And they want to get the future from a supernatural source. Few things are more wicked than when Christians do exactly the same thing. You go to see a psychic, or you go for a palm reading, or you go for tarot card reading. And so the Lord is calling them on it. And even the ancient enemies of Israel, like the Assyrians, knew that eating swine's flesh was an abomination. For some people in ancient cultures, they had a different view of the pig. Now, in Babylon, in Assyria, the pig was a bad sign. In Greece and in Rome, the pig was at least acceptable. But you typically don't offer the sacrifice of a pig to a deity unless you're offering the sacrifice to the deities of the underworld. And so ancient Greeks and Romans would sometimes bury pigs and allow them to rot in the ground as an offering to the deities of the underworld. And so when the Bible says, who eats swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, you know what they're talking about? Mouse stew. Rat stew. The Israeli people were forbidden from eating rats. Now, most of you, you don't have to be told, please don't eat rat stew. Most of you would go, um, I don't think I want to eat rat stew. Here's the idea. They're not keeping kosher. They refuse to keep clean. They openly worship idols in high places. And in verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Now think about this for a moment. They defy God. They disobey God. They worship false idols. They refuse to keep clean. They involve themselves in the occult. And then they have the nerve to say, you know what, I'm a very spiritual person. Make sure that you keep your distance because I'm a very holy, holy person. And here's the Lord's response. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. It's his way of saying, your religion and your holy self-righteousness makes me sick. In other words, they had the audacity of self-righteousness. They believed and even proclaimed their self-righteousness. They considered themselves holier than their neighbors. In verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. You all heard the scripture. Is it possible for a person to take fire to their bosom and not be burned? This is God's way of saying, Did you seriously, did you legitimately Did you think that you could continue a lifestyle of resistance and rebellion and that one day it wouldn't catch up with you? Does God see? Does God care? Will God punish the unrighteous? And see, here's the challenge. The challenge is if the punishment isn't immediate, people think they're getting away with it. 
In verse 7, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. In other words, it's his way of saying, I'm listening carefully and I'm watching specifically and I'm remembering everything. In verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, don't destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. The, the, the picture is a picture of a metaphor. Here's the, the metaphor. You have a vineyard. The vineyard's grapes are being harvested, and the, you have good grapes and you have bad grapes, but all of the grapes are headed for the vat. They're getting ready to to be crushed, to be made into wine. But there's this cluster of grapes. And God decides to rescue the cluster of grapes and to preserve the seed within those grapes in order to ensure the future. And here's the idea. God's going to preserve a remnant. Even though things look very, very bad, a remnant will return to the land. A remnant will restore the nation. A remnant will keep the Bible promises alive. In verse 9 it says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell, dwell there. In spite of all of this pain, and all of, in spite of all of these promises, in, in spite of all of this rebellion and disobedience, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to preserve a group. And it says, and my servants shall dwell there. In other words, the people will return to the land and promise. And in verse 10, Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Sharon, by the way, is the plain. It's the coastal plain. If you have a Bible and you have maps, if you look, there's a, a mountain range that where Jerusalem is situated, and then there's a coastal region that goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And that's the plain of Sharon. It's about 32 miles long. It's about 11 miles wide. And then the Valley of Achor, do you remember where that is in the Bible? That's the place in Joshua chapter 7 where Achan was stoned to death because of his disobedience to the Lord. So that was the Valley of Achor. So what is the deal? Well, when the Lord restores his estranged wife Israel, the Valley of Achor, instead of being the place where God punished disobedience, it will become a door of hope. In other words, when you look at a particular thing and you said, hey, that's where all of the sin went down. That's where all of the rebellion went down. That's where all of the disobedience took place. But God is going to take the rebellion and the disobedience and turn it into a place of restoration and reconciliation. As a matter of fact, it's spoken of in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, where the Lord says, I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. 
She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The idea being in the rebellion, in the disobedience, God is going to restore the relationship to a relationship of joy and intimacy. And then in verse 11 it says, But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Now, God is returning the people to the land. And there are two kinds of people in the land. Those who forsake the Lord and those who serve the Lord. God fulfills his promise. And as he is fulfilling his promise, even in the midst of the promise, there there will be those two groups of people. Those who will serve the Lord and those who will forsake the Lord. You know, one of the most troubling things that a Christian has to deal with is they come back into the church or they walk into the aisle and they sit in those chairs and they realize that there's two kinds of people. People who come to church, but they really don't serve the Lord. And then those that do serve the Lord. And it says, who forget my holy mountain. Do you know what the holy mountain is? The holy mountain is the place where God dwells. The holy mountain is Mount Zion. The holy mountain is the place where God reveals himself. And remember, the holy mountain for the Christian is what what mountain? It's Mount Calvary. It's the place where Jesus will climb the hill, that he will die on the cross for our sins. And so, remember, there's always been two ways to come to God. On your terms or on God's terms. And God has given a revelation concerning His holy mountain that those who come to Him and those who come to that holy mountain and they come to that place that they will acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will be saved. Have you ever met someone who said, I'll climb any mountain. I'll go as high as I need to go and I'll climb any mountain. I'll climb whatever mountain needs to be climbed in order to do what needs to be done. Except for one mountain. The mountain of the Lord. They'll climb Everest. They'll climb every 14er in the state of Colorado. But if you ask them to climb the hill of Calvary, they go, "Uh, it's a little too high for me. And look what else it says. Who prepare a table for Gad. Probably Gad here means fortune. And Mini means destiny. In this particular instance, Gad is the place of good luck. Or the good luck deity. And Mini probably means fate or fortune. And it, it may even be the same Arabian goddess, Manat, who's mentioned in the Quran. Or in the Babylonian pantheon, the deity was called Namtar, which is destiny. And Namtar was the grand wazir of the underworld. And so when he says, who prepare a table for Gad, who furnish a drink offering for Mini, 
these are people who, instead of trusting the Lord, they trust fortune. They trust destiny. These are the people who think that their life and their world and their destiny is governed by luck. And we say it casually in our conversation. Good luck. And when we say casually in our conversation, good luck, what are we implying? That your life is really based on unforeseen circumstances that you have no control over. But Christians know that luck is what a fool calls it when God gives him a break. There's no luck in the life of a Christian. Your life is ordered by God. It's established by God. These are the people who go to Blackhawk or Las Vegas. These are the people who pray to the deity of luck and destiny. Lord, if I scratch this off, Lord, if you give me a million dollars, I'll tithe to the church. You know what? If you don't tithe now, you probably won't tithe later. You know what? Instead of buying the lotto ticket, just give a dime from the dollar. So, he says, (laughs) Because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But you did evil before my eyes. And you chose that in which I do not delight. Now, there's a key understanding in that particular passage where it says, and chose that in which I do not delight. Part of the understanding that you've got to come to grips with as a Christian, and I know you torment yourself, and I'm going to suggest to you that you stop tormenting yourself. Have you ever woken up in the morning and go, oh, God, I want to stop doing what's wrong. I want to stop being so wicked. I want to stop being so evil. I want to stop being so rotten. I, I, I want to be a good person. The Bible doesn't simply encourage you to stop doing what's evil, but it encourages you to do that which is delightful to the Lord. And that's the idea. God's going to connect the present with the future. And he says, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief and spirit. For you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. The idea being, remember, in the land there are those who serve and those who don't serve. And he gives preview, if you will, of a coming attraction. In verse 12, I just want to go back real quick. It says, therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. 
When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. Here's the idea. God was speaking, but they weren't hearing. God was calling, but they didn't answer. That should be a sobering reminder to each and every one of us. Because there are so many people who will say, When did you call? When did you speak? When did you call to me? And when did you speak? You know, the Lord called to you each and every time that you heard the gospel. Even if it was as a child in a vacation Bible school. It was when the Lord called out to you, whether it was on the radio or on television, whether you were driving in your car, whatever circumstances, you were in the quietness of your own room, you're in your bedroom, you're calling out, you're crying out to God. And God's listening. So, now he's going to connect the dots. I want you to go to verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. The idea being, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. There is a God, he is a God of truth, and he reveals himself in truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. That is, you attest to the reality that a real God has revealed himself because the former troubles are forgotten. Here's the idea. The captivity, the bondage, the slavery is over. And now the Lord rips away the veil and he gives a preview into the coming kingdom. Look what it says in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is an enigmatic verse, and it's very difficult to understand. But let me just give you a couple of things to think about. When the Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The word create is the same word that's used in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's a a particular word in the Hebrew language, bara, which means to create something out of nothing. And so... It seems to indicate, for behold, watch, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. And look what it says. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. What does that mean? Does it mean that your experiences on the planet you won't remember? Does it mean that the relationship and the children that you have won't be remembered? Well, does it mean that the sorrow and the pain experienced in this life will no longer be remembered? Is it possible that in eternity future, there's going to be such a huge divide between the world that was and the world that's coming that all of a sudden the memories of this life begin to fade until they actually disappear? My answer is going to shock you. See, you're laughing because you're you're so used to me knowing. Now, some of you are mature. That's the politically correct way of saying you're old. 
and as you've distanced yourself from your past. Some of you may not remember all the little nuances when you were three years old or four years old or five years old. You may right now remember your first grade teacher, but some of you, it's just sort of a vague memory. Your second grade teacher, your third grade teacher, it's, it's all kind of a blur. There's some debate among Bible scholars whether this is a description of Christ's millennial kingdom or, or what's called the eternal state. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, again, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. We know that this world will pass away. There will be an eternal state. And when Isaiah says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, it might be what's known as a pericope. It's like a little window that doesn't tell us as much as we'd like to know other than the truth that there is an eternal state. Is this a window into eternity? It might be. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up We have good scriptural attestation that everything that you see and hear and understand and experience will disappear. And the new heaven and the new earth will be so glorious. I suspect that we'll be hard-pressed to remember anything else about this world. C.S. Lewis kind of hints at it in his series, remember... um, the Lion, the Witch, and the, the Wardrobe. And he speaks of this land called Narnia. And when the children are in the land, there's just this vague remembrance of a world that used to be. And so it's, it's, it's difficult to understand. But look what it says in verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. The imagination is a place where there is no sorrow or there's no pain. And you've got to understand something, that in Jerusalem there was pain and there was problem. And when it would be completely destroyed, there would be blood and there would be guts. And during the rebuilding, there would be ruination. But he envisions a time where Jerusalem is free from every kind of pain and every kind of problem. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, he says in verse 19, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. It's reiterated in the book of Revelation. And then in verse 20 it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Here's the idea. If you're an amillennialist, They think it's a figure of speech. But in the eternal state, we know that there's no more death and there's no more crying. If you're a premillennialist, 
This means that during the premillennial kingdom, when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth, there is going to be enormous lifespans. People will continue to live. They'll continue to give birth. People will live to enormous days. In verse 21 it says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In verse 22, They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. That means old. When you're as old as a tree, let's just face facts, you're old. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In verse 23, They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it says in verse 24, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Here's the idea. In the eternal state or the premillennial kingdom, depending on your view, you won't fast and pray like you do now. Have you ever spent long days and long nights over and over again talking to the Lord going, Lord, 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 are you listening? The idea being, no, the presence of the Lord is so real in this kingdom. There's no fasting. There's no praying. There's no pleading. It is as if you and the Lord are joined together. And the moment, even before you begin to speak, the Lord answers you. It's a time of permanent intimacy. And you know this scripture in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Again, depending on if you're an all-millennialist or a premillennialist, if it's the eternal state, then guess what? There are animals in heaven. So when I'm asked the question, will my pet be in heaven? This is really strong evidence that may your pet may or may not be there, but apparently wolves are there, apparently lambs are there, apparently lions are there, apparently snakes are there. What does it really mean? Whatever it means, it means in the coming kingdom that harmony will replace ferocity and humility will be the order of the day, wolves and lambs and lions and serpents will not be able to inflict harm. And we will dwell in a perfect circumstance. So what does all this mean? Whatever else it means, I think it means what I tried to indicate to you earlier. Being a Christian is more than just avoiding the really big sins that offend God. Being a Christian means more than just trying to be the best that you possibly can be. Being a Christian means that you delight in the things that delight the Lord. 
It means trusting the Lord and delighting in the Lord who delights in you. It means that you long to please God because you understand that pleasing Him actually winds up pleasing you. And you know what? We as Christians are tempted every day to throw this hope away. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of grace, the hope of mercy, the hope of eternal life, the hope of an eternal state. Now think about that. You are bombarded. The Bible's not true. Christianity's a fraud. Just forget about being a Christian. And do what? Embrace what this world has to offer? Have you been out there lately? Have you seen what they have to offer you? Yeah, we could go to a party. We could get drunk and we could all throw up into the toilet bowl together. Woohoo! Sin is pleasant for a season, but it takes its toll on you and it wears you down. And then it destroys your marriage, and then it ruins your family. And then it destroys your life. And then you die. What does this world really have to offer you? I'll tell you what the future has. Death. And estrangement from God. But in Christ, what does the future hold? It holds the knowledge that your Savior exists, not just today, but tomorrow. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus who holds his hands out to you, who extends love and mercy and grace to you, will he be there tomorrow and day after tomorrow and next week and next month and next year? In the next hundred years, in the next thousand years? In the next 10,000 years? Why would anyone want to live any other way than in friendship and fellowship with God? Why would anyone want anything other than Jesus? Heavenly Father, I pray not simply for the future, but for the future that awaits us. A future where we live in submission and humility with you and towards you. Lord, I know that there are those people who are curious about the future, but I also know that there are those people who are terrified about the future. And for the person who's curious about the future, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you will fulfill everything that you've said you will fulfill. All of the prophecy, all of the plan, it will all happen. And for the person who's terrified of the future, Lord, I pray that you would come to them in the present. I pray that the Lord Jesus would show up I pray that the Lord Jesus would show up and give them comfort and hope. I pray that the Lord Jesus would show up and remind them exactly 
all that you have for them. The offer of hope and forgiveness. Of joy. Of eternal life. Of an everlasting presence. And that they would wake up tomorrow knowing that the same Jesus who loves them today will love them tomorrow and love them forever. Lord, we pray that we could face the temptations of this world. Lord, we pray that you would make us brave so that we would live in humility and honesty and decency and submission to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.